The epistle is from 1 Corinthians chapters 9 and 10. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. Please rise for the gospel. Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 20th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. You heard in our epistle lesson from 1 Corinthians that St. Paul is afraid. He doesn't say it in so many words, but you can hear it in what he describes. He says in verse 27 of chapter 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Of all the people you might think would worry about losing their faith, St. Paul would probably be last on the list. St. Paul is afraid that 
work as he might and labor as hard as he could to preach the gospel to other people, he might himself lose the gift that he has been delivering in God's name to the people around him. Paul is afraid that he might lose his faith. That's something to bear in mind this morning, especially as Paul says, he points out what happened to the people of Israel. They all had all of the signs from God. They were brought out of Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. They followed Moses. They drank from the rock. All of them did all of those things. They had God's blessings poured on them abundantly. Nonetheless, did you hear that very last verse of our epistle lesson? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Paul is afraid that he might lose his faith. That he might lose his faith. And he tells you this because he wants you also to pay attention to your own faith, to the treasure that you've been given in God's promises and the gift of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Now, it's important to say at this point that there really are two different kinds of fear. And I often talk about this in terms of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And Martin Luther explains we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. What does it mean to fear God? Does it mean that we stand cowering before him in terror, or does it mean something different? The picture that I like to hold in mind for the difference between good fear, a good fear of God, and a bad fear of God is this. Imagine a bad fear of God is like walking around carrying a ticking time bomb. You don't know when it's going to blow up, but it's going to blow up sometime. That's a certain kind of fear, isn't it? That just all of a sudden, out of the blue, with no warning, everything is going to blow up. That produces a certain kind of a fear. Or also you could imagine it could produce a certain kind of callousness, right? If this bomb's going to go off at any time, what does it matter what I do? I don't have to be particularly careful about anything because this bomb might destroy me at any moment. That's not the kind of fear we talk about when we're talking about fearing God, nor is it the kind of fear that you should have when we talk about the fear of losing your faith. Instead, it is much more like this. Instead of thinking about holding a ticking time bomb that might go off at any moment, Imagine what it's like to hold a little baby. When you hold a precious little baby, what do you do? You walk carefully. You make sure that there aren't any Legos on the floor so that you don't trip over them. You make sure that when you go outside, the path has been cleared so that you're not going to slip on the ice. You walk carefully because what you're holding in your arms is precious. I was just going to say it's not going to explode at any moment, but uh, there are certain problems that you might have with a baby. <laughs> If, you, if you're too loud, maybe the baby will start crying. But bear with me, okay? So the key is you don't want to drop the baby, all right? This is what I'm trying to get at. You don't want to drop the baby, and so you walk carefully. You walk carefully. You pay attention to where you're going. You don't trip over things. You're cautious, and you're afraid that if you aren't cautious, if you're neglectful, you might trip and drop the baby. That's the kind of fear that we should have of God. First of all, that we would disappoint him. That by our actions we would incur his wrath. By our doing we would make him justly angry at us. It's also the kind of fear that we should have of our faith. Here we have this precious possession. God's riches poured out on us abundantly. We don't want to lose that. Of course, there is a danger. Besides being afraid in the wrong way, fearing like you're carrying a ticking time bomb, there's also the danger that you wouldn't be afraid at all, which comes from not understanding how precious this thing is that you're holding, not understanding how precious that gift is, in which case, when you fall, you might not even know that you dropped it. If you don't understand how precious this thing is that's in your arms, if you trip 
and fall over and leave it on the ground, you wouldn't know it's there. Or you might do something really silly, like you set the baby down so you don't spill your drink. The kind of way that we think about the thing that we're holding, whether we think it's precious or not, determines how cautious we are and how fearful we are of losing it. That's what Paul is after in our epistle lesson. He is afraid of losing his faith, and he wants you to be afraid as well, not because it might happen by some freak accident, something completely inexplicable, but because by our own neglect, we might set it down and never know the difference. By our own neglect, we might leave behind God's promises and not be any wiser to it. Now, how, the question that is raised by all of this is how do we do that? How do we gain a proper fear of God? How do we properly fear losing our faith? And it is not, as you might expect, to hear a thundering sermon about hell, about the dangers awaiting sinners. Now, you know those things, and there is a time and a place for that. But that can only produce that terror that you might be holding a ticking time bomb. The way to properly learn to fear God, the way to learn proper fear of losing our faith, begins in this way. The starting at any place for thinking about faith is always with the promises of God, with his graciousness, with his abundant love. The only way that you can learn to trust him, the only way that you can learn to fear losing what he's given you is if you understand how great it is. That's one of the most useful things about this parable that you heard in our gospel lesson. Oftentimes we think about this parable meaning something for those folks who come to the faith at the very end of their life. And there's something there. Something about deathbed confessions and people who were not grown up as Christians but come to faith in the end. But there's another, I think, more important point here, which is the generosity. The generosity of that master. This is one way that we can describe God's love for you, is his generosity. So think about what he does. Of course, as you might expect, this master goes out and hires some workers at the beginning of the day and agrees on their wage. But then he goes back into the marketplace and he sees some people not working. Three hours later, okay, you can get, you know, you can get five or six hours of work out of them, fantastic. He hires them on and they go into work in the vineyard. But then as the day goes on, you begin to, begin to see what is motivating him and it is not profit. It is not trying to have the most productive vineyard out there. It is not trying to make a name or a treasure for himself. What does he do? The hours go by and he keeps on hiring people. Why are you standing in the marketplace idle, he asks. Well, no one hired us. Fine. There's one hour left in the day. Come work in my vineyard. How much work can a worker get done in an hour? All the time it takes just to punch in the clock and get ready and figure out what, you're, what it is you're supposed to be doing. The answer is not much. This, this master is not hiring these workers because he is expecting output. From them. He is hiring them because he wants to be generous to them, because he wants to give them something good, work to do, and a wage, and a future. He wants to give them these things, and so he lays himself out there, sacrificing profitability, sacrificing efficiency, wasting his time hiring people who are going to do nothing for him just so that he can pay them. That is what was so astounding to the people who were there working all day long. They knew what was going on here, and it bothered them. Because, of course, the master was sacrificing something besides just their, his productivity that day, his profit that day, because, of course, what's going to happen tomorrow? Everybody who heard that you only have to work one hour for this guy to get a complete day's wage, they're going to wait until the end of the day to show up 
and get hired so that they can get paid by doing very little. He is sacrificing everything so that he can give wages to these workers. His generosity is astounding. That is what is so bothersome to those first-hour workers. And you can see in this parable that there really are two kinds of people. Two kinds of people in the parable and two kinds of people in the world. There are those people who receive God's generosity and those who do not. Those who do not. And what's surprising about the parable is that it is not that the generosity of God was not available to them. What kept those first-hour workers from receiving God's generosity was that they wanted something different. They didn't want a generous master. They wanted a fair master. They wanted to be treated equally with everyone else. They wanted to receive what was their due. They did not want a generous master. They wanted something else. And so he says to them, take your pay and go. This is not for you. This relationship is not what you're after. Go find somebody who will pay you what you're due. But I am here to be generous to whom I want to be generous. There's this great turn of expression, turn of phrase at the end of the gospel lesson there. He asks him, do you begrudge my generosity? More literally, it says, is your eye evil? Is your eye evil? Because I am good. They didn't want him to be good. They wanted him to be after profit so that they could be after profit as well. And so they did not receive his generosity. But the point in all of this is for you to see just how gracious God is to us. The analogy to the gospel is transparent. What has God done for you? He has called you out of nothing, out of death, out of sin, out of a future in the grave. He has called you who have not worked for him one moment. He has called you and given you everything that belongs to him. In the death of Jesus on the cross, in his pouring out his blood, in giving you himself, he gives you an inheritance that you should never have expected, that you did not deserve, for which you never worked, a future and a hope and a life. He has given you something that no one in this world could imagine. All that anyone in this world can imagine is a life that ends in the grave, a life of misery and disappointment and sorrow ending in the grave. But God has promised you something better. He has promised you a future and joy. There is nothing more valuable, no treasure more precious than that. And everything else that we could hold on to in this life is worth setting down to hold on to that treasure, to hold on to that gift, to have God continue to be generous to us and not to demand of him that he be fair. The generosity, that is the goal and the prize. St. Paul talks about what God does for us in terms of an athletic competition. Run, he says, run the race in order that you may obtain the prize. He's not saying work harder so that you can earn a Christmas bonus. He's saying run like an athlete who knows that he is himself actually his own worst enemy. That the only thing that is keeping him from obtaining the prize is the weakness of his flesh, his laziness, his desire not to work hard, his desire to be comfortable and at ease. Those are the things that hold an athlete back. Paul says they're the same things that hold Christians back. Run, he says. Run not like you're just trying to spend a day jogging on the track. Not like you're just planning to spend the rest of your life sitting on a couch. But run that you may obtain the prize. God's graciousness and his goodness. And so Paul says he's disciplining his body. He keeps his body in check because he knows that that is what he is fighting against. It's interesting and I think very helpful to think about how perverse 
our flesh is. Not in the way that you may imagine, but our flesh is perverse in this way, that our flesh lies to us. Our body, our flesh, our sinful nature lies to us about what is good from us. Whenever we are tempted to stay away from God's word, whenever we are tempted to give in to sin and evil, our flesh is telling us that God is not really that generous. Or that what he wants to give to us is not really that precious. There is something better. There's something better for you. This momentary pleasure, that's what you should pursue. What a lie that is. How difficult it is that that lie actually comes from within our hearts. And therefore, how important it is that we discipline ourselves. That we listen for those lies and we keep them in check and we say to them, No, I will not listen to your lies. I will instead run. I will run the race that is set before me so that I can obtain the prize. I think that the simple act of coming to church, which you have all done this morning, is a great example of how this works. Because what have you done in getting up out of bed this morning and coming to church? You have disciplined your flesh. You said no to your flesh. No, I'm not going to sleep in. No, I'm not going to make other plans. No, I'm not going to do other things that are more convenient. No, I'm not going to pursue pleasures and ease. No, I know where my true master is who is generous. All of these other masters that I might serve, they are tyrants. Maybe they'd give me what I'm due, but I don't want what I'm due. I want what this true master, this generous master, can give to me. Listen on those mornings when it's not easy to get up. Listen on those mornings when you don't get out of bed, when you don't come to church. Listen to what your flesh is saying and call it what it is. It's a liar. It's a liar who is trying to keep you from being in the presence of a generous master. Of course, it doesn't stop with just coming to church because day in and day out we are struggling against our flesh, our flesh which wants us to serve other masters, to work for other masters, to get our due from sin and wickedness and vice. Or our flesh tells to us, if, if God is really that generous, if he is as generous as he claims to be, he'll still be there tomorrow or the next day after I've done this thing that I want to do. Call your flesh what it is. It's a liar. It's a liar. And discipline it like training an athlete. Think of it like preparing for a race. There's always stages in preparing for a race. So the first time you get up to go running... Usually for me, it's my lungs <laughs> that rebel against me. <laughs> they say, you, you shouldn't be doing this. This is a mistake. You're going to die. Don't do this. Right? And I say, no, I'm not going to die. I'm going to get stronger if I do this. But once you've overcome your lungs, what's next? It's your legs saying, we don't have this in us. <laughs> that hill, Bluffton, Bluffton Road, you're never going to make it up that hill. So you discipline your legs. And then there are moments when you have to discipline yourself because you ate Mexican the night before or you were staying out late with your friends. You have to discipline your flesh in order to obtain the prize. Now, an athletic analogy, Paul uses it in our epistle lesson, but it doesn't always work for everybody, so I have another one for you, a different analogy. Think about your flesh like a spoiled child. A spoiled child. The kind of child who comes to dinner every night, not just expecting that there's going to be food on the table. That's a good thing. You want your kids to expect there's going to be food on the table because it means they trust you. Not just expecting that there's food on the table, but demanding it. When he wants it, and the kind of food that he wants, refusing to eat what you put before him because it was not what he asked for, nor what he thinks he deserves. Think about your flesh as that kind of a spoiled child. What does that child need? The child needs to be told no. The child needs to be disciplined. The child needs to be taught 
that far better than making decisions for himself about what's good and bad, far better than deciding for himself what he should receive, what might be good for him, he should trust his parents because his parents actually love him and want to give him good things and are doing that day in and day out long before he was even aware of it. That child needs to be told no so that he can learn to appreciate, to love the generosity of his parents. That's what your flesh is like. Think about it like a spoiled child. Discipline your flesh. Discipline your flesh so that it does not lie to you, so that you are not misled into believing that there is something more important, more precious than God's generosity, than God's mercy, his love for you. It's hard work. Paul doesn't hold anything back in telling us how hard this work is. Why would anyone ever do that? Why would you do it? Again, the beginning and ending ending place for every discussion of faith and receiving gifts from God is the generosity of God. If you're a worker, there is nothing better than working for someone who is generous. If you're a citizen, there can be no better kingdom to live in than in a kingdom that has a king who is generous. If you're a child, there can be no better home for you to live in than with parents who are generous. God has called you to be his own, to be his children. He has given not just part of himself, not just a bit of himself and his gifts, but everything that he has. He has given it to you. This is where you belong, in his kingdom, among his people, at home with God because he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to forgive your sins, and to give you eternal life. You have heard and believed his words. You're carrying these around like a precious treasure in these arms of faith that have received something good from God. Hold dearly to them. Hold tightly to them. And watch out. Watch out. You heard these beautiful words, this beautiful prayer, and that hymn we sang right before the sermon. Pray this prayer. Verse 2, O grant that nothing in my soul may dwell but thy pure love alone. O may thy love possess me whole, my joy, my treasure, and my crown. All coldness from my heart remove. My every act, word, thought, be love. This love unwearied I pursue, and dauntlessly to thee aspire. O may thy love my hope renew, burn in my soul like heavenly fire, and day and night be all my care to guard this sacred treasure there. God has given you this gift, and he will surely keep it. To him alone be glory, now and always. Amen.